This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear A&P by John Updike. You know, it's one thing to have a girl in a bathing suit down on the beach, where what with the glare, nobody can look at each other much anyway. And another thing, in the cool of the A&P... The story was chosen by Allegra Goodman, whose own fiction has been appearing in the magazine since 1991. Her most recent novel is The Cookbook Collector. She joins us from the studios of the Christian Science Monitor in Boston. Hi, Allegra. Hi. So I know that Updike has been really important to you as a writer. Did you ever actually meet him? You know, I only met him once, I believe, and it was actually at a New Yorker photo shoot years ago. Richard Avedon took some photos of fiction writers in The New Yorker. I think I was standing between John Updike and Nicholson Baker. So I met him then. He was charming. And had you been reading him at that point? You know, I've been reading him since high school, like so many other people in America. And uh, this story, A&P, is such a classic one. It was in my college anthology, and I later taught it when I was in graduate school. I saw somewhere that, that A&P is Updike's most anthologized story. Why do you think that is? What is it about this story that, that strikes a nerve with people? I'm not sure exactly how editors of anthologies make these decisions. It's it's <laughs> it's short. I, it's short. It's it's got that compactness. It's moving and surprising and he he packs an emotional punch in a small space, which is what great short stories do. It's also very American. So I think if you were looking for an example of an American short story sort of really grounded in the details of American life at that time, you know, when herring snacks cost 49 cents. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it, it, it captures something about time and place there. And it's a good example of his work as a craftsman. Right. Do you feel it's, it's emblematic of what he was doing in general? Particularly as a young writer, mm-hmm. you know, that, and I could see how when this story was first published, it must have seemed so fresh, you know. Even calling the story A&P after a supermarket must have seemed fresh and different. Right. It was written in 1961 when Updike was 29. And... Uh, living in a small town in New England with his wife and kids in a town similar to the one where the story is set. I saw a 1995 interview where he was talking about, Uptight was talking about the genesis of the story, and he mentioned that he'd seen at some point a, a girl in a supermarket in a bathing suit, and he thought about how shocking that was, even though if she'd been on the beach, he wouldn't have, you know, thought twice about it. He said the notion of public nakedness within this commercial setting was where I began. Yeah, I could totally see that that would be where he started. And I have to say, sort of personally for me, I have some connections to this story. My name, Allegra, starts with A, and my sister's name, Paula, starts with P. And we used to call ourselves <laughs> A and P after the supermarket. So as a kid, when I read the story, you know, I immediately gravitated toward it. <laughs> and then the other thing, which connects to the nakedness and the bathing suit, was that my sister and I grew up in Hawaii. People would walk into supermarkets in their bathing suits sometimes, and there was sort of that oh, you know, it's okay to do when you're a kid, but maybe when you're a teenager or you're a grown woman, it's not so okay. And those issues of people looking and gazing at at bodies in the summertime (laughs) or in Hawaii all the time. So even in Hawaii, you can't do that? Well, I don't know. It depends on the situation. There were no ANPs in Honolulu when we were growing up. We were a Safeway town. (laughs) But um, we used to spend summers in a small town in upstate New York, which had an A&P. Mm-hmm. And so all of those things connected in my mind for the story so that I really grew up with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Well, we'll talk a little more after the story. Now here's Allegra Goodman reading John Updike's A&P. In walks these three girls in nothing but bathing suits. 
I'm in the third checkout slot with my back to the door, so I don't see them until they're over by the bread. The one that caught my eye first was the one in the plaid green two-piece. She was a chunky kid with a good tan and a sweet, broad, soft-looking can with those two crescents of white just under it where the sun never seems to hit at the top of the backs of her legs. I stood there with my hand on a box of hi-ho crackers, trying to remember if I rang it up or not. I ring it up again, and the customer starts giving me hell. She's one of these cash register watchers, a witch about 50, with rouge on her cheekbones and no eyebrows, and I know it made her day to trip me up. She'd been watching cash registers for 50 years and probably never seen a mistake before. By the time I got her feathers smooth and her goodies into a bag... She gives me a little snort in passing. If she'd been born at the right time, they would have burned her over in Salem. By the time I get her on her way, the girls had circled around the bread and were coming back without a pushcart, back my way along the counters in the aisle between the checkouts and the special bins. They didn't even have shoes on. There was this chunky one with a two-piece. It was bright green, and the seams on the bra were still sharp, and her belly was still pretty pale, so I guess she just got it, the suit. There was this one, with one of those chubby berry faces, the lips all bunched together under her nose. This one, and a tall one, with black hair that hadn't quite frizzed right, and one of these sunburns right across under the eyes, and a chin that was too long. You know, the kind of girl other girls think is very striking and attractive, but never quite makes it, as they very well know, which is why they like her so much. And then the third one that wasn't quite so tall. She was the queen. She kind of led them, the other two peeking around and making their shoulders round. She didn't look around, not this queen. She just walked straight on slowly, on these long, white, prima donna legs. She came down a little hard on her heels, as if she didn't walk in bare feet that much, putting down her heels and then letting the weight move along to her toes, as if she was testing the floor with every step, putting a little deliberate extra action into it. You never know for sure how girls' minds work. Do you really think it's a mind in there, or just a little buzz, like a bee in a glass jar? But you got the idea. She had talked the other two into coming in here with her, and now she was showing them how to do it. Walk slow and hold yourself straight. She had on a kind of dirty pink, beige maybe, I don't know, bathing suit, with a little nubble all over it, and what got me, the straps were down. They were off her shoulders, looped loose around the cool tops of her arms, and I guess as a result the suit had slipped a little on her, so all around the top of the cloth there was this shining rim. If it hadn't been there, you wouldn't have known there could have been anything whiter than those shoulders. With the straps pushed off, there was nothing between the top of the suit and the top of her head except just her, this clean, bare plane of the top of her chest, down from the shoulder bones, like a dented sheet of metal tilted in the light. I mean, it was more than pretty. She had a sort of oaky hair that the sun and salt had bleached, done up in a bun that was unraveling, and a kind of prim face. Walking into the A&P with your straps down, I suppose it's the only kind of face you can have. She held her head so high, her neck coming up out of those white shoulders looked kind of stretched, but I didn't mind. The longer her neck was, the more of her there was. She must have felt in the corner of her eye, me and over my shoulder Stokesy in the second slot watching but she didn't tip, not this queen. She kept her eyes moving across the racks and stopped, and turned so slow it made my stomach rub the inside of my apron, 
and buzzed to the other two, who kind of huddled against her for relief. And then they all three of them went up, the cat and dog food, breakfast cereal, macaroni, rice, raisins, seasonings, spread, spaghetti, soft drinks, crackers, and cookies aisle. From the third slot, I looked straight up this aisle to the meat counter, and I watched them all the way. The fat one with the tan sort of fumbled with the cookies, but on second thought she put the package back. The sheep pushing their carts down the aisle, the girls were walking against the usual traffic, not that we have one-way signs or anything, were pretty hilarious. You could see them when Queenie's white shoulders dawned on them, kind of jerk or hop or hiccup, but their eyes snapped back to their own baskets, and on they pushed. I bet you could set off dynamite in an A&P, and the people would by and large keep reaching and checking oatmeal off their lists and muttering, Let me see. There was a third thing. Began with A. Asparagus. No. Ah, yes, applesauce. Or whatever it is they do mutter. But there was no doubt this jiggled them. A few house slaves and pin curlers even looked around after pushing their carts past to make sure what they had seen was correct. You know, it's one thing to have a girl in a bathing suit down on the beach, where what with the glare nobody can look at each other much anyway. And another thing, in the cool of the A&P, under the fluorescent lights, against all those stacked packages, with her feet paddling along naked over our checkerboard green and cream rubber tile floor, Oh, Daddy, Stokesy said beside me, I feel so faint. Darling, I said, hold me tight. Stokesy's married, with two babies chalked up on his fuselage already. But as far as I can tell, that's the only difference. He's 22, and I was 19 this April. Is it done, he asks, the responsible married man finding his voice. I forgot to say, he thinks he's going to be manager some sunny day, maybe in 1990 when it's called the Great Alexandrov and Petrushki Tea Company or something. What he meant was, our town is five miles from a beach, with a big summer colony out on the point, but we're right in the middle of town, and the women generally put on a shirt or shorts or something before they get out of the car into the street. And anyway, these are usually women with six children and varicose veins mapping their legs, and nobody, including them, could care less. As I say, we're right in the middle of town, and if you stand at our front doors, you can see two banks and the Congregational Church and the newspaper store and three real estate offices and about 27 old freeloaders tearing up Central Street because the sewer broke again. It's not as if we're on the Cape. We're north of Boston, and there's people in this town haven't seen the ocean for 20 years. The girls had reached the meat counter and were asking McMahon something. He pointed, they pointed, and they shuffled out of sight behind a pyramid of diet delight peaches. All that was left for us to see was old McMahon patting his mouth and looking after them, sizing up their joints. Poor kids. I began to feel sorry for them. They couldn't help it. Now, here comes the sad part of the story. At least my family says it's sad, but I don't think it's so sad myself. The store's pretty empty, it being Thursday afternoon, so there was nothing much to do except lean on the register and wait for the girls to show up again. The whole store was like a pinball machine, and I didn't know which tunnel they'd come out of. After a while, they come around out the far aisle, around the light bulbs. Records at discount of the Caribbean Six or Tony Martin Sings, or some such gunk you wonder they waste the wax on. Six packs of candy bars and plastic toys done up in cellophane that fall apart when a kid looks at them anyway. Around they come, Queenie still leading the way, and holding a little gray jar in her hand. Slots three through seven are unmanned, 
and I could see her wondering between Stokes and me. But Stokesy, with his usual luck, draws an old party in baggy gray pants who stumbles up with four giant cans of pineapple juice. What do these bums do with all that pineapple juice, I've often asked myself. So the girls come to me. Queenie puts down the jar, and I take it into my fingers icy cold. Kingfish fancy herring snacks in pure sour cream, 49 cents. Now her hands are empty. Not a ring or a bracelet, bare as God made them, and I wonder where the money's coming from. Still with that prim look, she lifts a folded dollar bill out of the hollow at the center of her nubbed pink top. The jar went heavy in my hand. Really, I thought that was so cute. Then everybody's luck begins to run out. Langle comes in from haggling with a truck full of cabbages on the lot and is about to scuttle into that door marked Manager, behind which he hides all day when the girls touch his eye. Langle's pretty dreary, teaches Sunday school and the rest, but he doesn't miss that much. He comes over and says, Girls, this isn't the beach. Queenie blushes, though maybe it's just a brush of sunburn I was noticing for the first time, now that she was so close. My mother asked me to pick up a jar of herring snacks. Her voice kind of startled me, the way voices do when you see the people first, coming out so flat and dumb, yet kind of tony, too, the way it ticked over pick-up and snacks. All of a sudden, I slid right down her voice into her living room. Her father and the other men were standing around in ice cream coats and bow ties, and the women were in sandals, picking up herring snacks on toothpicks off a big glass plate, and they were all holding drinks the color of water with olives and sprigs of mint in them. When my parents have somebody over, they get lemonade, and if it's a real racy affair, schlitz in tall glasses with they'll do it every time cartoons stenciled on. That's all right, Lingle said, but this isn't the beach. His repeating this struck me as funny, as if it had just occurred to him, and he had been thinking all these years the A&P was a great big dune, and he was the head lifeguard. He didn't like my smiling, as I say he doesn't miss much, but he concentrates on giving the girls that sad Sunday school superintendent stare. Queenie's blush is no sunburn now, and the plump one in plaid that I liked better from the back, a really sweet can, pipes up. We weren't doing any shopping. We just came in for the one thing. That makes no difference, Lengel tells her, and I could see from the way his eyes went that he hadn't noticed she was wearing a two-piece before. We want you decently dressed when you come in here. We are decent, Queenie says suddenly, her lower lip pushing, getting sore now that she remembers her place, a place from which the crowd that runs the A&P must look pretty crummy. Fancy herring snacks flashed in her very blue eyes. Girls, I don't want to argue with you. After this, come in here with your shoulders covered. It's our policy. He turns his back. That's policy for you. Policy is what the kingpins want. What the others want is juvenile delinquency. All this while, the customers had been showing up with their carts. But, you know, sheep, seeing a scene, they had all bunched up on Stokesy, who shook open a paper bag as gently as peeling a peach, not wanting to miss a word. I could feel in the silence everybody getting nervous, most of all Langle, who asks me, Sammy, have you rung up their purchase? I thought and said, no, but it wasn't about that I was thinking. I go through the punches, four, nine, gross, tote. It's more complicated than you think, and after you do it often enough, it begins to make a little song that you hear words to, in my case, hello, bing there, you gung happy people, splat. The splat being the drawer flying out. I increase the bill, 
tenderly as you may imagine, it just having come from between the two smoothest scoops of vanilla I had ever known there were, and pass a half and a penny into her narrow pink palm, and nestle the herrings in a bag, and twist its neck and hand it over, all the time thinking. The girls, and who'd blame them, are in a hurry to get out, so I say, I quit, to Langle, quick enough for them to hear, hoping they'll stop and watch me, their unsuspected hero. They keep right on going into the electric eye. The door flies open, and they flicker across the lot to their car. Queenie and plaid and big, tall, goony, goony. Not that as raw material she was so bad. Leaving me with Langle and a kink in his eyebrow. Did you say something, Sammy? I said I quit. I thought you did. You didn't have to embarrass them. It was they who were embarrassing us. I started to say something that came out as fiddle-de-doo. It's a saying of my grandmother's, and I know she would have been pleased. I don't think you know what you're saying, Lengle said. I know you don't, I said, but I do. I pull the bow at the back of my apron and start shrugging it off my shoulders. A couple of customers that had been heading for my slot begin to knock against each other, like scared pigs in a chute. Lengle sighs and begins to look very patient and old and gray. He's been a friend of my parents for years. Sammy, you don't want to do this to your mom and dad, he tells me. It's true, I don't. But it seems to me that once you begin a gesture, it's fatal not to go through with it. I fold the apron, Sammy stitched in red on the pocket, and put it on the counter and drop the bow tie on top of it. The bow tie is theirs, if you've ever wondered. You'll feel this for the rest of your life, Lingle says, and I know that's true too. But remembering how he made that pretty girl blush makes me so scrunchy inside. I punch the no-sale tab, and the machine whirs, people, and the drawer splats out. One advantage to this scene taking place in summer. I can follow this up with a clean exit. There's no fumbling around getting your coat and galoshes. I just saunter into the electric eye in my white shirt that my mother ironed the night before, and the door heaves itself open, and outside the sunshine is skating around on the asphalt. I look around for my girls, but they're gone, of course. There wasn't anybody but some young married screaming with her children about some candy they didn't get by the door of a powder-blue Falcon station wagon. Looking back in the big windows over the bags of peat moss and aluminum lawn furniture stacked on the pavement, I could see Lengel in my place in the slot, checking the sheep through. His face was dark gray and his back stiff, as if he's just had an injection of iron. And my stomach kind of fell, as I felt how hard the world was going to be to me hereafter. That was Allegra Goodman reading A&P by John Updike, which was first published in The New Yorker in 1961 and collected in The Early Stories, 1953 to 1975, published by Knopf. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. 
You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Allegra, the most striking element of this story for me, at least at the beginning, is the voice and and how strong it is right off the bat. You know, that first line, in walks these three girls in nothing but bathing suits. And when I was reading this again, I, I felt sure that Updike had just driven our copy editors nuts because he breaks all the rules of, of so-called good writing, you know, with partial sentences, word repetitions, comma splices, tense shifts, and so on. What do you think of this voice and, and its authenticity? I love the voice, and I, I think that the first line, it, it really is iconic. When I was reading it aloud, I noticed the tense shifts a lot, a lot more than I did when I was sort of reading it in my head silently. Mm-hmm. And I think it's brilliant what he does with shifting between the present tense and the past tense, because what he's doing when he layers those two things is he's managing to have the reader there in the moment with young Sammy when he's 19 years old working in the store and also with older Sammy looking back, reminiscing about what happened. So Mm -hmm. you get the old and the young at the same time with the past and the present tense and putting those together, layering them that way, I think is, is quite wonderful. I think that's probably happening in another way, too. You know, the register of this voice makes these wild swings. You know, yes. One moment he's saying she was a chunky kid with a good tan, and the next moment he's saying, you know, this clean, bare plane of the top of her chest down from her shoulder belly. It's like a dented sheet of metal hanging in the light. It doesn't sound like the same person at all. No. But I wondered if it was meant to sort of show us this shift that's happening in Sammy in this scene as he's sort of changing from small-town checkout boy to, to something more sophisticated. Or maybe trying to envision himself that way. Right. Envision himself outside of the store in this sort of more mythic world in a place where he might have this sort of beau geste, you know, and and do this thing that startles everybody. The great dramatic moment of his life, you know. Right. So much pathos in that. There's also something very Salinger-esque about it. This sort of disaffected young man defending teenage girls and and standing up to this gray-skinned symbol of authority. Do you think that there's an intentional echo of, of Catcher in the Rye? Or maybe that the two words parallel working with some of the same ideas. Yeah, I think that there's a little bit of Holden Caulfield there. But, you know, he's sweeter than Holden. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Holden has his sweet moments. Yeah, that's true. That's true. (laughs) And I think also there's a wavering between um, views of women in this story, views of girls. On the one hand, he has a sort of chivalric view of Queenie and and. He admires these girls and their bodies, and he almost worships them. You know, they're like the—I was thinking of Botticelli, you know, Primavera with her (laughs) flora, you know, goddess. You know, he's got the sort of classical triptych of young girls walking into the store. And at the same time, he's got the more mundane adolescent attitude towards girls. Do Mm -hmm. girls really have a mind at all, or is it just like a bee buzzing in a jar, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting in the interview with with Updike that I watched, he— referred to Sammy as a sort of typical, well-intentioned American male. And he calls him a boy who was trying to reach out of his immediate environment towards something bigger and better, who quit in a kind of feminist protest. <laughs> and I thought that was interesting because, I, you know, a lot of people sort of accuse the story of being misogynistic or Sammy of being misogynistic in the way that he looks at these girls. Mm-hmm. Where do you fall on that debate? I half agree with Updike. I think he quits out of He's trying to make a statement about these girls, you know, and, and I think he admires them. But I wouldn't use the word feminist. That's anachronistic <laughs> with yeah, this story. Yeah. I think that's Updike reading later politics back into his earlier work. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's fair mm-hmm. um, to what's really happening here. It's To me, it's also a period piece. 
And it has to do more with chivalry. I think of Sammy as, you know, he wants to be a knight. He wants to throw his cloak down before the girl in the bathing suit and let her walk over it, you know, throw his apron down. Right. He wants to be a hero. And what do you think is going on here in terms of class? I mean, obviously, there's that moment where where he sees, Sammy sees the herring snacks and imagines Queenie at home with with adults in bow ties drinking cocktails and and thinks of his own home where lemonade is served or, or Schlitz. When he worries about her being embarrassed, do you think he's projecting something of his own social embarrassment? Yes. I think he's seeing himself and his store and his life through their eyes. And it's heartbreaking. That part is very moving to me, actually. Updike is good at a few things um, here <laughs> and in his early stories, which I love so much. He's so good at describing girls. And he's so good at, and this is something throughout his career, just showing the way people look at each other and the way people have insights into the way other people perceive us. And that's going on here as well. And do you think his vision of these girls is, is like he said, sort of a typical well-intentioned male view? Or do you think there's something more going on? Is he more perceptive? I think it's a little more complicated. I think he's got this sort of chivalric ideal going on. And he's also got the typical adolescent, very physical thing going on. You know what else that's layered on top of this, which I also find very interesting. He's got Updike going on. The artist is still there. That moment, that same passage that you were just quoting where he um, is thinking about him, his parents versus Queenie's parents, and she's the upper class family. And how does he enter into that moment? He says, I slid down her voice into the scene, you know, imagining her living room. And I think of that as the artist. I think of Updike taking a voice or a moment or, or something visual and sliding down it and creating a scene. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, there's a little bit of, of the proto-writer or proto-artist in Sammy as well, layered on top of that. The artist's hand is there. Yeah, he's he's cluing us into how much voice matters to him and how yes. hard he's worked on this voice, I think. Exactly. What do you think he's trying to say in that last line? Why Why will the world be so hard to Sammy after this? Is it because he's spoken up and done a noble thing? Or is it just that he has to go and tell his parents he quit his perfectly good job for no reason? Well, I think that he lives in a town where there aren't a lot of options. And it's it's not like there are a million possibilities open to him. The fact that the manager of the store knows his parents and has done for years, you know, this was going to be his career path. You know, maybe someday he would have been a manager. He's not somebody who went to college. He's 19 and he's working in the supermarket. So the question is what possibilities there are. And I think looking back ruefully, he sees that, you know, the world was not all before him there. Yeah. And, you know, it's I've thought about the last line. I've Sometimes I've read it and I've thought it's too much, you know, that he was sort of telling too much, that Updike was a little too heavy. Mm-hmm. And at other times, like when I read it just now, I thought it was quite beautiful and just very moving. When Lengel tells Sammy he's going to feel this for the rest of his life, what is it that you think Lengel means? He's going to feel the shame of having done this dumb thing? or do you I think, think he's going to feel that he, he lost his job and this, yeah. he's not going to be able to work at the A&P. This is like the only store in the town because right. he explains just how small it is. And that's wonderful too, the economy in the story. You get a real sense of the circumscribed world that, that he's living in. On the other hand, I don't think he does feel or at least feel what Lengel thinks he'll feel because, you know, oh, he, has, not yet. he has that, well, he has that line, which is obviously him in the future looking back when he says, now here comes the sad part yeah. of the story. At least my family says it's sad, but I don't think it's so sad. He seems contented. It's a little note of defiance there. <laughs> yeah, but or or just things have worked out okay and he can look back on yeah. that without... But without maybe he had a hard sad. road and then things worked out. That's one way of looking at it. Now, interestingly, Updike when he first wrote the story, it went on for another three or four pages and had a scene in which Sammy 
leaves the A&P and goes to the beach to look for the girls. Oh, really? And can't find them. And William Maxwell, who was his editor at The New Yorker, he strongly felt that the story should end where it does now, you know, with him quitting. And Updike, I think he thought about it and came around to it. And he ended up using those other pages to write another story, which was called Lifeguard. How do you think you would feel about the story if it went on to that scene? That's interesting. Um, I think that Maxwell did the right thing. (laughs) I think that... (laughs) Sometimes editors are useful. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do think so. And um, I'm saying this as a writer. You may not always realize it right away, but especially with some distance. Yeah. And one thing that editors are good at is sort of saying, this is the shape, this is the frame, you know, stop here, quit while you're ahead. Mm -hmm. Um, The rhythm is here. Don't keep going. You'll dilute it. (laughs) Right, right. And so I can totally see that. And I can also see why he might not have wanted to take that advice at first. But, you know, the thing that's wonderful about a short story as opposed to a novel is, is the smallness of the short story. And I think the best short story writers embrace that. Some people seem to have just a set length that they write at. I mean, Updike had a lot of variety, though. He wrote very short ones and and stories that were really, you know, 10,000, 12,000 words sometimes. He was very good. (laughs) Just sentence by sentence, you know. And I have to say that I like his early stuff the best. Why is that? What, What is it about the later stories that appeals less? I think they got kind of longer and more discursive, although you're right, he had variety up to the end. And I like, I do like him all the way through. Mm-hmm. But there is something, perhaps it's the youthfulness that shows through the kind of energy that the early stories have, this sort of sense of discovery. He always had that love of detail and that, that tremendous craftsmanship, you know, that he's so wonderful at descriptive writing. But in the early stories, it's almost like it's all new for him. And he's sort of prancing around and enjoying his powers. Right. It's very fresh. Well, thank you so much, Allegra. Thank you, Deborah. Allegra Goodman is the author of six novels, including Catterskill Falls, Intuition, and The Cookbook Collector. Subscribe to this podcast or download previous episodes in the iTunes store. Just do a search for New Yorker and join the conversation on our Facebook page. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. 